Ben and team. Good morning. I'm Dr. Bain, one of the fill-in guys. Mike was supposed to be out hiking, but with his knee, he's stuck here and he's not being bitter. So that's, uh, you know, when you have a vacation or a, a thing planned, how irritating that can be. Um, about a year ago, I did a couple sermons on the heart and the mind, so I'm going to kind of pick up from there. I know no one would remember any of that stuff, and so it's not required for this. But today what we're going to do is talk about the heart and the mind. Uh, and thinking about that, our heart is really kind of our emotional thinking, the seat of our emotions, where the mind is the cognitive processing center, and they're different things. And so here's our objectives. Number one, we're going to just look at basic anatomy. That's going to reveal a significant problem. And from there, we're going to look at emotions and thinking. And so this week, we're really going to see what a problem is. Next week, we'll pick it up and move from here. So we start with basic anatomy, words of Jesus, Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains a whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So this word for soul in the Greek is psyche. So if you're going to study the soul, and notice what Jesus is doing is teaching the soul. It's not eternal. That goes both ways. But immortal has a start and it goes forever that way. And so we have an immortal soul that will outlive our flesh. And so if we're going to study that, that would be psychology or psychology. And look at the paradox with modern secular psychology where they would deny the existence of an immortal soul. Or if they had believed in it, it would be some kind of weird thing that's not biblical. How do you actually study something you don't believe in? It's an interesting paradox. So we're going to keep going with words of Jesus, Mark 12. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So you see the heart and the mind. That's what we're going to focus on today. Number one, the Bible teaches true psychology of the heart and the mind. Of the heart and the mind. We go on in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have It's in our hearts that we set apart. That is an act of will. It's a decision. But you notice the heart is our emotional thinking, but we choose. Are we going to put Christ up as Lord, or are we not going to do that? That's in our heart where that takes place, if we're going to choose to do that or not. Number two, the heart is where we choose what we want to believe. There is what is true, and there is what you want to believe to be true, and those are hardly ever the same thing. So a brief review of looking at our our heart and our mind. We did this a a while ago. We're not going to dwell on it too much, but the colored areas in here is going to be our limbic system, uh, and that's basically the Bible would call that our flesh. Immediate gratification right now, dopamine reward system in the brain. Uh, That's kind of our fleshly stuff, impulses, And then you have our cortex, which would be the outer part of the brain, specifically the prefrontal cortex. That's going to be your executive thinking, your higher mind. We're designed from top down to be able to control our limbic system, but it often comes out through. Right in the interface, this is the cingulate gyrus right here. So the cingulate cortex is up here. The anterior cingulate cortex lies right in the interface between limbic system and prefrontal. It can turn down the limbic system and turn up the prefrontal cortex, or it can turn down the cortex and turn up the limbic system. You can't fire them both effectively at the same time. So that's just fundamental things to start understanding what these parts are in our mind. So I have a beautiful wife, and let's say I'm going to talk to her and I say, honey, I love you. In fact, I love you with all of my heart. Yes, my bowels. Now, You're thinking from 21st century 
America, thinking. Old Testament Hebrew, it would be bowels. And you might say, well, that's the foundation for a messy relationship, you could say. But uh, we're going to go to Song of Solomon 5. Now, this is a sensual love poem between a husband and a wife. So sex is a beautiful thing within the constraints of marriage. And so that's what this is. And here's the wife's response. There's part of a verse here. My bowels were moved for him. You, you, you laugh. That's exactly what it is saying. The Hebrew word there is intestines. So maybe he just showed up at the wrong time. It's like 40 minutes after too much coffee in the morning or something like that. But that would be King James. My bowels were moved for him. And this is erotic love. Is this? I'm only showing you part of the verse because if you go to the Hebrew, it's pretty graphic. My feelings were stirred for him. My heart was thrilled within me. My heart began to pound for him. So it's really this emotional thing. But God is using the word from the bowels. You know, we all get butterflies and that sort of thing. Let's move on to lamentations. That was bowels. Here's a different one of our innards, our inward parts. God made his arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. Don't worry about the arrows. This is God penetrating our heart deep in. But the innards, the inward parts... He pierced my heart. These are all the same verse, different translations. He caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. My reins, my reins. What in the world is that? You read a King James, you'll come across this all over the place. What is that? It's kilia in the Hebrew. That means kidney. So the question is, why would God teach us about our anatomical parts and use things like our kidney. We know we don't think with our heart. That's a four-chambered muscle that pumps blood with valves in it. We think with our mind, but he uses the heart. And why does he use intestines? Why does he use kidney? So we're going to look at that just briefly. Exodus 29, you shall take the fat that covers the entrails, that's the intestines, and the lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys. The two kidneys, there it is, that's kilia. And this interesting phrase, and... The fat that is on top of them. Oh, it's interesting. Let's go to Leviticus. There it is again. The two kidneys, the kilia, literal kidneys. So it sometimes uses it for heart or mind, but the literal meaning is the kidneys. There's the two kidneys, and you see the fat that is on them. What is this? I've gone through Exodus and Leviticus, and I have counted more than ten times where this phrase is used in the context of sacrifice. That brings us to number three. In the Levitical sacrificial system, the priests were experts of anatomy. There are some feasts where they will kill 100,000 animals in one day. So when you start going over decades, not decades, but centuries, the collective experience of the Hebrew priest will be multiple, multiple millions of animal autopsies that they have performed. And they don't just slash them and burn them. They are taking the parts out according to prescribed practice. This is the law. You're not just burning that thing. And when you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you realize there's a sequence and an order. So what is the sacrifice? If you are looking at these animals, what is, we know what the kidney is. What's the fat above the kidney? That's your adrenal gland, adrenal, the renal gland, ad, next to, near, on top of. The adrenal gland sits housed within the fat on top of the kidney. So if you have a tumor in your adrenal gland and some surgeon's going to try to take it out and he touches that gland, you'll probably die. That is your stress hormones there. Adrenaline, adrenal gland makes adrenaline. Adrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol. So any stress, it does not need to be mental stress. You could be chased by a herd of bull elephants. 
You could be starved. You could be overcrowded. You could have any of a physical illness. Anything will go into your brain to your hypothalamus, and then it'll go to your pituitary, and from there it'll go down to your adrenal gland, the adrenal glands, and you make your stress hormones. So you can take a rat in the lab and stress it for just a couple of days, near-drowning experience, and you will measure enlargement of the adrenal gland. Where is it? Housed within the fat above the kidney. So these priests sacrificing things all the time, they will come to the conclusion, wow, we take this whatever it was, goats or sheep or rams or bulls, and they're being hunted by wolves or they're overcrowded or they're not fed well or they're diseased, they're starved. Their adrenal glands will be more robust so you'll have more mass and weight in the fat above the kidneys. Well, where did that come from? It must have come from the kidneys. Therefore, the kidneys are the source of emotion. Perfectly logical when you think it through. So we don't really care about the Levitical sacrificial system anymore. We're not under that. I'm just using this as we embark on a study of the anatomy of the heart and the mind and what God is actually teaching us about that. So there's things like intestines and kidneys, and you'll find kilia for kidneys is used for the literal kidneys as well as both heart and mind. So we're just going to focus up on the heart and the mind And the mind being our cognitive center, but the heart being the emotional center that generates thoughts and where we choose what we're going to believe. That leads us to number two, which is the problem. Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. It's deceitful. Number four, the heart is more deceitful than all else. Pretty powerful statement by God. It wasn't always that way. We go back in time to Genesis 1, the creation. This is the end of day 6. So God is done creating now. And God saw all he had made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening and morning the sixth day. So this is the end of day 6. And then there's a day of rest. There's nothing more created after this. God looked at a little bit of what he had created off in the corner. No, he looked at all that he had made, and behold, that means you look, you weigh, you evaluate, you measure, you render a verdict. God is going to render a verdict, and what is his verdict? It was all very good. That's not kind of okay. That's tov ma'ov, good, very. That is a superlative from God on creation. So that means there was no Lucifer having fallen to Satan yet. There was no millions of dead things buried in the rock layers for billions of years because God calls Satan and he calls death an enemy and an intruder. He would not call an enemy good. So that really that critically constrains your thinking now of understanding God of the Bible. Number five, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. All he made, behold, it was very good. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation. Genesis 3 is the fall. We move up now to Genesis 6. God is going to render another verdict. He's going to look, weigh, measure, evaluate. He's going to render another verdict before he destroys the world with the flood of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What is God evaluating here? The heart. The heart of man. And what's the verdict? It was only evil. So anything you hear in culture, you know because you hear in culture, it's wrong. Satan is a master of propaganda. Yeah, man is inherently good. False. Man is inherently evil. That's what the Lord God Almighty says. Humanism says man is good. Only evil, he never takes a break. Evil never goes on vacation. Continually. 
every, and yes, God says thoughts come from the heart. So he's using that, of course, metaphorically as the seat of our thinking and our emotion. And actually, the seat of cognition begins in the heart. The intent, yeser in Hebrew, that's a cognate of forming. So God formed Adam. Formation is yasar. Those are cognates. They're related words. So we come back here. God is saying the yeser, the formation, the very formative level. You have not completed a thought yet. You're simply forming your thought. What is every piece of ingredient that you're putting into that thought, it is only evil and how often continually. That is a verdict of God on fallen man. Profound to think of that. And the Lord was sorry that he made man in the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Why do we have emotions? Because we're made in the image of God. The problem is our heart is now fallen. God's is not. God has emotions. We'll see later here today. Jesus has emotions, but they are never ruled by their emotions. But it's natural to have them. We're created in his image. So we're now going to go fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew 15, words of Jesus again. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. You notice Jesus is confirming what God said. Out of the heart comes thinking, evil thoughts. So he picks this fight. We're not going to dig into this one. But Jesus intentionally picks this fight with the Pharisees on hand washing. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. After the thoughts come your actions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things which defile the man, the evil thoughts from the heart. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile you. You are already defiled. You eat with unwashed hands, the worst you'll get is maybe hepatitis C or some gastroenteritis or typhoid or something like that. That's nothing. That is not defiling you. What is defiling you is the sin that has already corrupted your heart from the moment of your conception. That's what defiles you, and then it comes up and out your mouth. So in Proverbs, do not let your heart turn aside your ways. This is the wayward woman, the prostitute. You have a dog on a leash. He wants to go a certain direction. Do not let it go that way. That's the default where it wants to go. You can fill in the blank of the temptation there. It's an act of will, and what part of your anatomy is involved in that? Your heart. You do not follow your heart. You Keep your heart on the leash and you force it back in here and then you impress the word of God into it. We're going to do the remedial stuff next week on how to remedy this. Number six, we choose whether or not we will follow our sinful and deceitful heart. We choose if we will follow our sinful and deceitful heart. So when you actually understand this, some of the most unbiblical advice you can give is what I have done before and I know you have done it, is we say this, well, you got to follow your heart. If you understand the Bible, you will never use that phrase again because understanding it, what kind of advice is that to give somebody? Follow what is totally sinful but so deceitful you don't even realize what it is, but you feel good, so you follow it. The worst advice you could ever give is to follow your heart. Yet you notice you hear that in our culture all the time. If you hear it in the culture all the time, it is a lie of Satan. So now we've seen our basic anatomy and we look at the problem, which is our sinful heart, and that controls and dictates our, how we perceive things with our emotion and our thinking. So now what we're going to do is move into the New Testament, John 11. And this is Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And you all know the story. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And if you're like me, once you know the end of the thing, now you tune out, yeah, whatever, hurry up, turn the page, next story, let's move on. I know he raises him from the dead. That's not the point of the story. 
The worst thing you can do to your brain, reading a book or whatever, is fast forward to the end, know how it ends. And then go read. And people, oh, I enjoy it more. No, you don't. That's laziness to your brain. You're not wrestling. You know how it ends. It removes doubt. And now you don't grow in character as you read this. It's laziness and you're fostering in your brain when you do that. Don't do that with a story in the Bible. I know how it ends. And then you check out and you don't wrestle. What we're going to do today is wrestle with this text a little bit and think. And so we're going to enjoy the pathway. And as you're walking along, we're going to smell the roses. And if you smell a rose and it stinks... You need to stop and think, maybe that's not a rose. Why am I focused on the end when I don't understand what God is trying to teach me through the story? So now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now Jesus is a day's journey away, so it takes about a day for the message to come. It's going to take about a day for his reply to go back. Here's his reply, uh, but they first say, the one you love... Is sick. This is phileo love. This is not a stranger. This is a deep, bonded, brotherly love. Not somebody doesn't know. This is a deep friend. Your deep friend is sick. And the word sick, they're implying death. And if you're not sure about that, you just look at Jesus' response. And he starts with but, or he doesn't say but, but the narrative's but. That should make you pause. Your deep friend is sick and probably going to die. But that means Jesus isn't going to do what they're thinking he's going to do. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. So yes, he understood the ramifications of the message they sent as it looks like he's going to die. It's not going to end in death, but rather for the glory of God and through that, the Son. So that's number seven. The purpose of Lazarus' sickness was the glory of God and the Son. Yeah, I know, he's going to raise him from the dead. That's not the point. So don't think that's what this story is about. John 11, we go on. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. They repeat that. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So, in the Greek, that's a a conjunction. It is conjoined like conjoined twins. It is necessarily conjoined to what comes before, which is the fact that he loved them. So we go to number eight. Jesus delayed coming for two days on account of his love. You smell a rose, you just smell something else. That ain't love, that's rude. So, we could ask it this way. A question forces you to think. Why did Jesus wait two extra days when he heard his dear friend is sick? Hey, your dad's dying, he's in the hospital, it looks pretty grave, you you might want to get here. Okay, screw you, I'm going to wait two days, and then I'm going to come. We have a problem. And the problem is we're reading this in English and we're reading love. We're already told that he loved them with phileo love, but this is agapeo. This has nothing to do with emotion. This has nothing to do with the fact that that's his friend. Agape or agapeo love is a verb. It's action. It's what Jesus is going to do. So we're already told that he has an emotional bonding with Lazarus. That's a given. John is not repeating that. In English, it says love both times, but it's phileo, and now it's moving to agapeo. That's why there's a but there. It's a transition. So we're moving to a whole different understanding of love of what Jesus is going to do. So we think about this. Why did Jesus so rudely wait two days, and it's not simply to resurrect Lazarus? It's because of agapeo. What is that? The love of the not putting salve on the emotional wounds of the present right now because the guy died. It has nothing to do with it. 
It's all about the best interest of the objects of his love, and not in this time frame, but with an eternal view. So that's starting to make us think differently why Jesus is doing what he's doing. After this, after they had waited two days. So remember, he's a day apart. So it takes a day for the message to get there. He sends his message. And then he waits two days. Let us go up to Judea again. And notice his message. She said, hey, he's sick, he might die. He said, no, it's not going not to end in death. Let us go to Judea again, up by Jerusalem. The disciples said, whoa, pump the brakes, Rabbi. The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going to go up there again? We've got to have context. We're in John 11. Go back to John 10. What was John 10? Jesus was in Judea, in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees and the, the Jews were so mad that they were going to stone him. They weren't com- contemplating it. They weren't casting a vote. They had him at the edge of the city and stones in hand. The stoning is starting to begin, and it's this miraculous thing. We're not explained exactly how, but it wasn't yet his time. And so Jesus passed through their midst and left. It wasn't his time to die. It was not yet closing the 69th week of Daniel, not time to die. That's an amazing concept, too. If this is not my time to die, you can't die if you are following God's will, which Jesus was. So that was chapter 10, is they were going to stone him. So that's why the disciples say, whoa, that's why we went a day's journey away from here to get away from this. If we stayed two days, we kind of understood why you're staying. But now you want to go back? Bethany is less than two miles away from Jerusalem. The Jews are all right there. The Pharisees are all right there. We don't want to go back there. Martha, therefore, skipping a few verses, we can't go through the whole thing. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, he already told her he's not going to die, but now he's dead. What is Martha's focus I tried to give you a hint. God. Who is not her focus? Jesus. Ah, oh, number nine. A major focus of John's gospel is the deity of Jesus. He's not 87% or 93% deity. He is deity. And so Martha's not quite getting this. He, we told you he's probably going to die. You said he's not going to die, but now he's dead. I think we need to appeal to the big guy. This is now beyond you. You've gotten into the real deep waters. Martha then said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Now, remember, they're stuck in old. There is no New Testament written yet. What is a mystery? A mystery is a previously unrevealed truth. The resurrection, she knows this. She's Old Testament. She's not naive. That is in Job. That is in Ezekiel. That is in Daniel. The physical bodily resurrection. That is in the Old Testament. It is not a mystery new to the New Testament. What is a mystery in the New Testament? The rapture. There's a subtle difference. The rapture. The birth of the church is a mystery. That is not in the Old Testament. The exit of the church, the rapture, is a mystery. So rapture is a mystery. Resurrection is foundational, known from the beginning. Job was before Abraham. So they all knew of the resurrection, and Martha states this as well. I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Now Jesus is going to rebuke her. He's going to pour cold water in her face and basically slap her. What is his rebuke? How does he respond? I am. What What was Martha saying? 
dude, you said he was not going to die. He is dead. Let's appeal to God. I am, I am Yahweh. I am manifest right here in front of you. Why are you looking anywhere else? I am deity. I'm not partial deity. I've willingly submitted to God, but I and the Father are one. I am Yahweh. That goes back to the burning bush. That goes all the way through the Old Testament. I am. There's seven times in the book of John where Jesus says, I am. Seven, the number of completion, the number of God, fully defining the I am, the Yahweh, who is revealed in the Old Testament, but we see more aspects of him. I am Yahweh. Get your eyes on the ball, Martha. Why do you think we need to appeal to anything beyond me? I am God. He slaps her around because she's, and you miss this when you know he's going to raise Lazarus. You don't focus on what's going on. And let's put this in context because Jesus, why would he rebuke Martha? That's exactly what he does. So now Martha said, I know he'll rise again. You said he won't die, but here he is dead. Jesus said, well, he's going to rise again. I know he'll rise again, and I understand the eschatology of it. And Jesus says, I am. Focus the thinking right here. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. There is no resurrection apart from me. And notice this is before his own resurrection. I am the resurrection. It's me, Martha. And now look what else Martha is doing. She is looking at a calendar. There's an event on the calendar called the resurrection day. She's looking to that. That is an aspect of creation that she is worshiping. What do we worship? The creator. I am right here. Why are you looking to an event? Look at me. Worship the creator. Not any aspect of the creation, even if it appears to be holy. Christ is rebuking her and funneling her thinking so she understands the point. Our thinking. The problem is it's built on our emotions. So we start with our deceitful heart, and it's sinful. Mary and Martha, you and me, all of us have a sinful heart, and we're going to struggle. And that's the purpose of why Christ goes through, not just telling us how it's going to end, but goes through because it's changing our heart. Jesus does not base his thinking on emotions, but rather the capital T, truth. Number 10, Jesus cannot be distracted from the truth, capital T, the truth. Why? He is the truth. And that's why he was born, is to give testimony to the truth. We will get swayed with our emotions and think through that lens. Christ has emotions, but he thinks from truth. Therefore, when Mary came, so we've been talking about Martha. I've skipped a few verses here for time. Now, when Mary came, so now it's Mary's turn to where Jesus was. She saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same thing Martha said. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, again, the context, it's 30 days of mourning, but it's seven days of intense mourning. We have like two hours at a funeral. They spend a week, seven days. The first three days are professionals coming in, mourning and weeping. Now by the fourth day, it's family and friends for the whole week. That's why there's all these Jews here. They were on day four. Members have been dead four days. So there's a non-biblical concept that the spirit might hover out of the body for three days and potentially re-enter it. Uh, So that could be one reason why it's four, but that is not a biblical concept at all. That's from garbage, uh, not in scripture. Four days, good and dead, also smack in the middle of the morning week, but after the professionals have gone, and now we're with family and friends, and there's a lot of them. And the Jews, he sees them weeping, 
He is deeply moved in spirit. So is there agape? Is there agapeo in here? No, this is emotion. What's agape? That's transformational thinking for where we're going to be in your best interest. This is emotion. So there's no agape in this. And there's multiple Greek words. Jesus was deeply moved to his spirit down to the core and was troubled. This is a very profound statement. This is not being sad because his friend Phileo Love has died. This is a comprehensive statement of the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator, the Great I Am, realizing and being emotionally entwined with the consequence of sin, which is death, and the pain that that does to tarnish a once perfect creation. And he's thinking future to where he's going to go to solve this problem and all the pain. This is a deep emotional situation. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And now the emotion just bursts forward and he weeps. Yes, he has emotion. So Jesus, being deeply moved, he says it again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone lying against it. Number 11, true or false, Jesus experienced the full range of human emotion. That's true. He is true and full deity. He is also true and full man. And I just gave you several you can look up there. That's not a comprehensive list. But he has deep emotional sadness, sorrow. He has anger, but he doesn't sin in his anger. He's hungry. He's tired. He's fatigued. He has great joy. He has all of these emotions just like us. He's deeply moved, repeated. The difference is he experiences them. Is he controlled by them? No, he is controlled by following truth. He experiences the emotion, but it never derails him. So when Jesus said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, it's a command. And yes, if you read prior to this, I'm not able to go through all the verses, he does have a prayer to God, but he specifically says, this prayer is for them so they know we're connected. He is not at all pleading or asking. There is no invocation. Lord, please heal them. Lazarus, it is from the I am standing there. Jesus Christ himself raises him from the dead. There is no need for the Father because he is full deity. That is a big part of what he's rebuking Martha for. She didn't understand that. She was appealing to the Father. And he's focusing her down. I am the creator. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. So what's the end result? It is not the resurrection of Lazarus. It is this. Believed in what does that mean? That's eternal life. So they believed in him of who he was now as a result of this. That is the therefore. So why did all this happen? They believed why. That's the same conjunction in the Greek as the so. So, so Jesus heard that his friend was sick. So he stayed two extra days. So hooked on because he loved them. Agapeo love. And it's agapeo love that this is the result. It is not the resurrection. So the agapeo, their best interest at heart, it goes well beyond Lazarus. This has nothing to do with putting salve on a dead dude and everyone is sorrowful. I don't care about the emotion. He does care. But he's far more interested in agapeo. I have to move your thinking We have a result here that it has nothing to do with the resurrection. It's believing in me for your eternal life because I resurrect. This is not a glorified body of Lazarus. He's still going to die again. Just like all the other people that were resurrected. Nobody is resurrected before the first fruits, which is Christ himself. Nobody is resurrected. So he is still going to die again. So they're still going to have the problem. We're not solving the big picture problem here. We're moving the lever in your heart to realize I am Yahweh. I am God. And that is your eternal life. Have faith in me. 
Resurrection is just a tool for that. But, there's always a but, there's always an exception. Some of them, some of these Jews that were there, went and told the Pharisees. What Jesus, hey, he's just raising a dead guy. They're pretty, less than two miles away. And now that, we're going to move into that a little more next week. But remember chapter 10, they were going to stone him. Now we are chapter 11. The last of his public miracles is Lazarus. He, he fixes the ear, but that's a private one in the garden. So it's his last major public thing, I am. And then it moves into his crucifixion. And we're going to look at some of that next week. This week, what we're going to finish our focus on is the thinking. So Jesus in Matthew 12 says, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So how do you know what's in somebody's heart? Listen to their words and think about them. So let's look at Martha and Mary. Martha, Lord, if, that's a big word, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's turn. Same exact thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So I wonder what their emotion is. I'll give an example. Thanksgiving Day, we always have a turkey bowl. We play football outside, and then we come in and eat. So let's say we're in the turkey bowl. Do you really get a Super Bowl trophy for that? I've won it, and I've lost it, and I've never got a trophy, so it's not really that important. You're having fun with family. So let's say you're going to play to 10, and you are getting smoked. It's 9 to 0. You're getting creamed. You can't do anything. I mean, this is just stupid. Let's hurry up and go and eat. Whoa. The car pulls up. You know how those games are. Different people show up at different times. And there's your cousin who's six foot eight, played Division I football, and he's fast. He's still young. He's still in shape. We're all old and fat. Oh, hey, you're on our team. We're down 9-0. And he intercepts the ball every time. You just throw high balls to him. You score. You score, score, score. And now you're down 9-8, to eight, and you are driving into the end zone, and it's an easy score. You're going to throw it to him again like you've done every time. You're going to, uh, and the moms come out. Hey, time to eat. Ooh, this is Thanksgiving. And so, of course, you go, well, that's a coulda, shoulda, woulda. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Man, had you been here the whole time, we would have won the, the turkey bowl. That's coulda, shoulda, woulda. Let's just use the turkey bowl. Come on in and eat. Thanksgiving. You know, there's like 16 different moms and grandmas and aunts in there cooking everything. And you wait two hours to finish the game. And then you come in, taking your cleats off, and you're talking about the game. What is the emotion from mama? I told you it was time to eat. The turkey's cold. The ham is cold. It used to be gravy. It's now gelatinous stuff. I told you it was time to eat. And you stayed up. Are you going to enjoy your Thanksgiving? What is the emotion? That is obviously anger. Lord, we told you he was sick. You said he wouldn't die. We told you it was sick and you waited two days. This is a statement of anger. And they both make it. They're angry. But the anger of God does not achieve the righteousness of man. This word in the Greek for anger is fluid filling a plant or a flower. That's what makes it turgid and stand up. It is filling it from the inside. That's our heart. But our anger does not achieve the righteousness. It does not achieve the agapeo. We're angry. Now we can't achieve the end result that God wants. The foolishness of man subverts his ways. Yet you notice what an anatomical part rages against the Lord? It's the heart. We screw up our own ways, and then our heart rages against the Lord. Number 12, the result of emotional thinking is that we blame God. The result of emotional thinking is that we blame God. Mary and Martha just did this. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. They are blaming Jesus for the death of Lazarus. They're not. We do it. Adam did it in the garden. God says, what are you doing, Adam? He says, well, the woman you gave me. No, 
The woman you gave me, Adam blames God as well. We all do it. Once you start going emotional thinking, you will end up subverting your own ways because of your foolish thought, which we'll analyze in a minute. But then notice your heart rages against the Lord. Adam did it. Mary and Martha do it. And we all do it. Just think about yourself and you will see it in there. So let's look at a foolishness scale, because again, anything you hear from our culture is false, because Satan's in charge of the culture, and he's an expert of propaganda. So we heard that with follow your heart. You will hear this as well. If I had you define foolishness, you'd probably all say the same thing, or some version of it, just like I would. That's a bunch of six-year-old kids acting foolishly. That's not foolish. That's being kids. What is foolishness? Foolishness is defined in the Bible. The fool says, there is no God. That is foolishness. So it's not acting silly. See how Satan distracts us from the truth all the time? So we're going to put a scale on here. The fool says there is no God. And it's a progressive scale. So as you lower in foolishness, you increase in wisdom. And that's what Jesus wants to do is move us that way on the scale. The fool says there is no God. Notice Mary had that problem. Jesus, I am. He slaps her thinking around, I am deity. She did not realize that, didn't know that. But she understood quite a few things. She understood there'd be a resurrection. So I've arbitrarily put her there on the scale. After she gets slapped around by Jesus, we're not picking on Martha. Put yourself in here. Put myself in there. But at the end of her interaction, she moves on the scale. And then she says this, she said, yes, Lord, I believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes to the world. That's a messianic title, he who comes into the world to solve it. I didn't quite have that, and I thought you needed help. I, I wasn't quite sure. You said he wouldn't die. He died. We got a problem. I'm emotional. He slaps her thinking, gets her focused on the I am, which is him, and now she makes this great statement of faith. She moved further away from foolish and more towards wise. How about the dudes that went and told the Pharisees? Well, they're way over here. Even if we admit there's a God, we want it to be God that we control, worship the way we want, and it sure ain't this dude standing right here. Right? They're very near to 100% fool. That's all just like us. Don't think we're over there very far. We're all here thinking with emotion. Christ is operating through agapeo, agape. Let's look at the difference. What is the focus? Mary and Martha, what is the focus of their emotional view of love? How I feel... And what's the time frame? Right now. How do I feel right now? And you notice Christ never even addressed it. He loves us. He doesn't want us to just suffer pain, but that's what's required for us to overcome and grow. He never addresses that issue. And when we're focused on that, let's compare that to agape. Agape love is not my will, but yours. It's not me. It's their best interest. What's the time frame? It's not immediate. And it's not even a 10-year delayed gratification plan. It is eternal, completely out of this realm. So when we view things through an emotional lens, we can be seeing, just like Martha, deity incarnate, Jesus Christ, the great I am, and we cannot see it. And actually, when you analyze the thinking, if we're going through the lens of how I feel right now, Christ is rude exceedingly rude. They have a right to be angry. In the world's terms, you abuse me, I have the right to be angry, and we justify our anger. You can't even see agape when it's manifest in front of you when we view through an emotional lens. 
We have to get slapped around and woken up and water in our face. The blank is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. The heart. And that statement is the heart of all mankind. It's easy for me to say the heart of all mankind or the heart of all you suckers is deceitful, but I'm a part of all mankind, so my heart is deceitful. Look at these yellow words. Read them out loud for me. Go ahead. Go. Isn't that hard to say? Uh, we, last night, there's this nine-and-a-half-year-old girl. I couldn't even hear anyone else, and she just belted it right out. She's not old enough to try to disguise her heart a whole lot yet. Tender. That's what God wants, is a tender heart. Why is that so difficult to verbalize? That gets us to 13. It is difficult for us to verbalize the truth about our own heart. Next week, we're going to pick that up and go a little bit more of solving this problem. But here's the question. Why do you trust your heart? Why do you follow it? And why do you tell other people, well, Jim, you got to follow your heart. Why on earth do you give that advice instead of stepping back and thinking through, going through the story of Mary and Lazarus and working through it and smelling the roses along the way and challenging our thinking? It's not what conclusion you came to. It's tell me the pathway that got you to that conclusion. So in summary, we're looking at the heart and the mind. The heart is our emotional seat of thinking, but it's the seat of the forming of our thoughts, according to God. The mind is the cognition and simply spits out the answer. We looked at basic anatomy, including stuff like the reins, the kidneys, and the fat above the kidneys. It's amazing to me to realize how stress and things in our mind, from our hypothalamus to pituitary to our adrenal glands, and what that does to our body. It's pretty amazing, but then the problem is, We're sinful from conception and our heart is deceitful and that affects our thinking because that's our emotional core of our thinking. 